pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, thank you. And because of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, that each of us has the capacity and the ability and the responsibility to allow you to shine through us. Forgive us, Father, when our own light and our own will shines forth more than yours does. Lord, I pray when people see us that they would see that you live and reign in us. Father, now for this hour and for this moment, I ask for your grace and your sufficiency. The grace and anointing of the past hour is not enough for this one. And so, Father, I ask that as I preach, that men and women might not see me, but that they would see Christ, the holy, righteous one who reigns on high. May we never take lightly, Father, our responsibility as a church and as the people of God to maintain the purity of the bride. Father, use now this message. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, as we talk about the third of the seven churches. John MacArthur has said that the problem with the church in America today is that it has spiritual aids. Spiritual aids. It has no immune system from heresy. And it is susceptible to any disease, any heresy, any error that comes down the pike. I have two friends who pastor churches in Texas. Both of them have gotten up in their churches before and blessed people for being there and thanked them for being their brothers and sisters in Christ and thanked them that they could share a common bond in Jesus Christ, but at the same time blessed them as they asked them to walk out the back door because they were trying to push onto their churches what their churches did not want. Ladies and gentlemen, we live in a day when everybody wants smorgasbord in the church. We kind of want the church to be like an all-you-can-eat buffet. An all-you-can-eat buffet may be good and it may be cheap, but it'll kill you if you eat at it all the time because you're going to get some things there that aren't healthy certainly don't contribute to a well-balanced body and won't contribute to a well-balanced uh, physical body. And there are things that you can just throw into the church that won't contribute to the church being well-balanced spiritually. Stand, if you would, in Revelation chapter 2, uh, verse 12. And the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the angel you remember is the pastor, the messenger, the elder of the church, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly. 
and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Notice that it's the second time he has talked about the sword. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Now look over, if you would, at verse 16 of chapter 1. For the correspondent identifies himself as the one with the sharp two-edged sword twice in chapter 2 to Pergamos. But he says in chapter 1, verse 16, And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. You may be seated. The correspondent writes to the church, and he identifies himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. The two-edged sword was a symbol of highest and absolute authority. It was a symbol of a sovereign, of one who ruled, of one who had the right to life and death. It was the symbol at that time of the Roman proconsul. In his hand, he held a sharp two-edged sword. Jesus says, I know where you dwell, and I write to you as one who has a sharp two-edged sword. I hold ultimate authority. It may look like Satan's throne is there. It may look like Satan is dwelling there, but I hold the absolute ultimate authority in my hand, and it comes out of my mouth. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. Jesus said, I am that two-edged sword. I'm the one that can cut through all the things and all the isms and everything else. I'm the one that can cut through and tell you no matter what it looks like on the surface, I'm the one that's in control. He writes to a church that is in the middle of where Satan dwells. The word Pergamos or Pergamum means marriage. This church had a mixed marriage. Now one of the things you need to understand about what's happening in our culture and in our society today is that we've got a lot of churches with mixed marriages theologically. Got a little hodgepodge of this, and a little group of that, and a little salted in over here, and two teaspoons of this doctrine, and, and five cups of this theology over here, and they kind of throw it all together and think that they're going to have a church that has harmony. It'll never work. Never work. There's a particular couple that hosts a religious broadcast. I won't name their name, but she wears a big bow in the back of her hair. And I've watched them on one night have Dr. D. James Kennedy, who's a Presbyterian, on the next night have Richard Jackson, who's a Southern Baptist, and on the next night have Oral Roberts, who's a Charismatic, and agree with all three of them. Folks, you can't do that. You can't sit there and just have nodding approval to everything. You know, that's, that's convenience theology. You know, it's kind of like, let's get up and you go to a restaurant and they say, our special for the day is black bean soup. Well, their special for the day is whoever the theologian is sitting on their platform, then they go with that. Folks, you don't know what you believe, why you believe, and who you believe. You're going to be in a mess, an absolute mess. And we have a problem with the church at Pergamos that they had no discipline. They did not hold to the basic tenets of the faith. They allowed every little thing to come creeping in. This city is an interesting city. In fact, an ancient saying said, anytime any strange teaching came down the road, it ultimately ended up in Pergamos. Kind of like some churches I know. Somebody comes up with a strange teaching, a weird idea, a little slant to the truth, which there are no slants to the truth, but they come up with a new idea, a new revelation, a new this, a new that, and they always have a way of finding their place in a vibrant church to become like a serpent. 
Pergamos was a city that had a library that had 200,000 volumes in it, second only to the library in Alexandria. In 29 BC, the temple to Caesar was built there. The first temple for Caesar was built there. The city was founded in 700 BC by the son of Hercules. The temple of Zeus was there, one of the seven wonders of the world. The temple to the god of healing was there. And the insignia for the God of healing was a staff with a snake wrapped around it, a serpent, which Scripture identifies so many times. The serpent is identified with Satan. And this God of healing, they used snakes a lot in their healing services, and the priest would let them barter for how much they were willing to pay to be healed. And then many times they would put a sick person in a room full of snakes, and if the snakes bit them and they didn't die, they'd be healed. Interesting place. He says that Pergamos was where Satan's throne was. Parchment was developed in Pergamum. A lot of things about that that have great historical significance, but it, Jesus identifies it as the place where Satan's throne is. They have lived in Satan's throne, right in the back seat of Satan's throne. Now, there are several different ideas about why he uses those terms. One is the temple of Zeus resembled a throne. It sat on a high hill and you could see it from 20 miles away. The other is, is that on the coins of the city, on one side of the coin was a coiled snake and on the other side of the coin was a, an insignia of the Roman emperor with a Nazi-type salute, which in those days, as it was in Nazi Germany, a symbol of adoration and worship and of giving yourself to that person. He says that Satan dwells there and you have found yourself there. And he says to this church, I know where you live. One thing about the Lord, folks, he always recognizes our circumstances. And you may look around and think, nobody in this room understands my circumstances. Nobody in this room understands what I'm going through. Jesus knows exactly where you live. He never forgets your address. He never goes without knowing about your problems and your needs and your hurts. And he says to this church, right in the middle of Satan's throne, a church that we don't know who started it. We don't know how it started. We only know about one member, and that's Antipas, who was boiled in oil. He says to this church, I know right where you are. Now, it's got to be encouraging when the Lord Jesus says to you, I know where you are, because there are times when we think he doesn't, but he says, I know where you are, and he comes to them and gives them a commendation in verse 13, because he recognizes in verse 13 their consistency. He recognizes their consistency. They are face to face with the enemy, and he says, you've held fast to my name. You've held fast to my name. The name of God implies the character of God, the nature of God, who he is, what he is, what he's all about. Jesus says, you have been loyal, you have held fast, you have stood your ground with my name, with my character. Remember those old cigarette commercials in the 60s or the guy always come in or the lady always came on they had a black eye and said, I'd rather fight than switch? Uh, so that's kind of the testimony of this church, you would think, by Jesus saying this. You see, the testimony of the church really was like the testimony of many churches today. They'd rather switch than fight. He said, not only you have held fast to my name, but, but that uh, you did not renounce my faith. You did not renounce my faith. Now, here's a church who held fast to the name and the character of God. 
They didn't renounce the faith. They didn't back up on the gospel. They didn't quit sharing their faith. In the middle of where Satan dwells, here's a church growing, vibrant, holding on, standing fast, holding on to the name of God. And a church can hold fast to the name of God and hold fast to the faith in God and still need revival. This church needed a revival. Now, why did it need a revival? Because Jesus gives it a word of condemnation in verses 14 and 15. Look at those verses, if you would. Verses 14 and 15, he talks about two things. He talks about the teachings of Balaam, and he talks about the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, here's a church that tolerated what they should have tried. These were the original people of detente. They thought you ought to just get along. Now, folks, this is not a political statement. This is just a fact. I've got a book in my office. It's a great book. It's called You Can Trust the Communist. The premise of the book is you can always trust a communist to be a communist. He's not going to be anything else. And ladies and gentlemen, we are stupid if we think that the communist and people with a Republican mindset of government, Republican form of government, democracy, are ever going to get along. That's a mixed marriage. Just like it's a mixed marriage to say that Satan and the world and the flesh and the church are one day going to be able to get along. That's what this church was doing. They weren't dealing with the problem. They had learned the word compromise and just getting along and, oh, it doesn't really matter what we believe and it's just as long as everybody loves everybody, it doesn't matter what we believe. Folks, there is a place in the church for doctrinal purity. A church needs to know what it believes and why it believes. Horatius Boner said, I looked for the world and found it in the church. And that's where the world is finding itself now. Dr. Havner said Satan's quit fighting churches and started joining them. The teachings of Balaam are mentioned in Numbers chapter 22 through Numbers chapter 25. Balak, the king of Moab, hired Balaam to curse and condemn and confront the people of Israel. And because Balaam's name means Lord of the people, Balaam came to them with this great idea. He said, listen, we're the people of God, we're the chosen ones of God, and that means we can do anything we want to do. Kind of like Paul dealt with when he said, that some of you are saying, let's sin so that grace may abound. We can act like we want to act. We're God's people. We're God's chosen people. He has set us aside from all others, and so we can do whatever we want to do. So the people of God mixed with Moab, and they had fornication and idolatry and immorality. Now, here's what happened. Balaam tried three times to curse, and he couldn't do it. He tried to curse the people of God, and he couldn't do it, so he corrupted them. This is how Satan always works. If Satan cannot destroy you as a roaring lion, he will deceive you as a serpent. He will find a way to get to you. He will find a way to work on you. And if he can't get you with an out-and-out frontal assault, then he will get you by deceptiveness and by acting like a serpent. And here's what Balaam did. Balaam was a prophet for hire. Remember Richard Boone, Have Gun, Will Travel? Some of you right now are singing that little theme song. Have gun, gun. <laughs> you see, there are some people who are nothing more than prophets for hire. They merchandise the gospel. They merchandise 
the gospel. I want to tell you something, folks. In my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect, anybody that takes 30 minutes on television and spends 12 minutes of that time asking for money doesn't deserve to be on for 30 minutes. They're sopping the churches dry of money so that they can build bigger and better water slides and bigger and better limousines and bigger and better mansions for them to live in. That's why you're crazy if you send your money to people and don't check them out. You ought to send your money to the local church where it belongs, where it can be used around this world, not send it out to these idiots that get on TV and sell you a $20 Bible for $150. Now, folks, if you need a Bible, we got some folks that will sell you a Bible. You don't need one that bad. It is amazing to me the junk, Jesus junk, that people will buy under the guise that this is going to be an investment in ministry. And I'm going to tell you, when somebody gets on television and says, if you don't give, if you don't give, if you don't give, we're going to go off the air, I'm going to tell you, they're already off the air with the lost world. The lost world's not listening to them. And why in the world are we on television if we're not out there to touch a lost world? The last thing we as believers need is to sit and soak anymore. We need to be up and serving. We don't need to soak up anymore. We got so much hodgepodge of stuff, and, and Balaam comes in, and he's just like a, a TV religious huckster. He says, you can just kind of do anything you want. We've got an accommodating theology going on in our culture today. It says you can believe anything you want to believe. You can say anything you want to say. You can do anything you want to do, and as long as you do it and just kind of sprinkle the name of Jesus over, it's spiritual. That ain't so. Bad English, good theology. It ain't so. You can't believe anything you want to believe. You can't say anything you want to say. You can't offer anything you want to offer. I don't see Jesus walking around offering holy hardware. It is amazing to me that the teaching of Balaam is still in the church. And here's what Balaam did. He sold himself to the highest bidder. And what he did was he allowed a new term to come in that we have made very popular worldly Christian. Billy Sunday said to talk about a worldly Christian, you might as well talk about a heavenly devil. In just a few weeks, I'm going to preach a revival in San Antonio, Texas. There is a church, not this one, thank God, because I wouldn't go there, but there is a church in San Antonio, Texas that for their singles ministry, they offer nights in local bars. They're reaching singles by the thousands. For them to go to local bars and to dance and to drink and to party and have fellowship and then to come to Sunday school and talk about Jesus. My friends, that is heresy. It won't work. It won't fly with the Bible. Singles ministry is not body shopping. It is amazing to me how we have come to this point in our country and as Dr. Havner said, when all the Lord's white sheep become dingy gray, the world feels more comfortable. When they've got a sinning pew and a sinning pulpit and, and all of these things have happened because we have not been faithful to the master, we allow Moab to filter into our system. The teachings of Balaam. 2 Timothy 2.19, Let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now notice he says not only the teachings of Balaam, but the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The Greek word for Nicolaitan means to rule the people. To rule the people. Now, if you study these churches uh, dispensationally, you will find that this church existed, although these churches are characteristic 
You can find them in any age. This church existed at the time of the fruition and the growth of the Holy Roman Church. There's a sense in which this, which this reference is to popish mentality. Now, don't be offended by that, but I'm going to tell you something, friends. You can't find in this Bible where it says one man is supposed to rule millions of people. It's not there. And when Peter said, who is the head of the church, supposedly, when Peter said, we are a royal priesthood, what Peter was saying was, you don't need me to get to God. You can get to God on your own. To rule the people. And there's the teaching of the Nicolaitans of the churches today. It is amazing to me. It's called a power struggle. Some people get their kicks out of being in power in a Fortune 500 company and, and in politics and in all this kind of stuff. And some people get their kicks by getting power in the church. Now, you know it. You've been in churches long enough to know oh, he's, he's the power of the church. He's the one that's got the power in the church. Friends, I want to tell you, if any human being has the power in the church, that church is in trouble. It better be Jesus that's got the power in the church. If any of us, if any pastor, if any staff member, if any layman has power in the church, we better lay it down because the power is going to come from a two-edged sword and he's going to lop our heads off. Power. The one who tries to dominate, the one who tries to rule, the one who tries to override everybody else and push everybody else out of the way and say, it's going to be my way. Now, these people come in all various and sundry forms. They say things like, God led me. Or God told me to tell you. I've always liked that. I've always loved that God told me to tell you business. That's, that one's always blessed me. It implies I don't pray and I don't have a relationship with God. It's the first thing it implies. But, you know, God told me to tell you. Well, the only time I've ever felt like that, I've just wanted to go to some of these TV evangelists and I want to say, you know, God told me to tell you you're fired. <laughs> Now, here's the new twist. A word of knowledge. How many of you have heard that phrase, a word of knowledge? Got a word of knowledge. Find that phrase in the Bible. Find it in any way being used like it's being used today. One prominent television minister had a word of knowledge about Jim and Tammy Faker, and he got up and he made all these statements about how we needed to get our hands off of everything else. Three months later, he rescinded that statement. Now, if he got a word of knowledge from God, did God change his mind three months later? Did God just have to read USA Today to find out what was going on? Friends, I want to tell you, a lot of the word of knowledge is from hell itself, and you better be careful. Because all you've got to do when somebody has a word of knowledge and they tell you they got this out of the Bible, read what the Bible says before it makes that statement and read what the Bible says after it. And 95% of our theological problems in churches today would be solved if they would take the Bible contextually, in its context. God does not speak randomly. God speaks with decency and in order. And God says what he says, and he means what he says, and he doesn't need us to get a word of knowledge and just pull it out and try to make it say something to fit our theology. God says it, he means it, that settles it. God's word doesn't need this new aura of a word of knowledge. In fact, I'm reading a book, an interesting book, by an Assembly of God preacher who is refuting all this word of knowledge that's going through the assemblies of God right now because he says it is a dangerous heresy. It's interesting. 
to rule the people, to take control, to take charge, to take over. And these people, those who had uh, promoted immorality and idolatry, those who had promoted power struggles within the church, Jesus comes down and he gives the church a command in verse 16, and he says, repent. He does not say repent to those who were following the teachings of Balaam. He does not say repent to those who were following the teachings of Nicholas. He says to the church, repent. Now here's what he was saying. Jesus was saying to the messenger of the church, you let those folks in, you should have never done it, you need to repent. They wouldn't have made it into the church if you hadn't let them in. So you need to repent of letting them in. It is interesting to watch the folks that will come when God starts to do something in a church. And you pick up all kinds of people. Most of them are just hopping from one place to the next. Folks, the church is not built on people who hop from one place to the next. The church is built on people who stick by the stuff, even when it's hard. Even when it's hard. And Jesus says to this church, repent. Why? Because they were tolerating what they should have judged. Now, now here's where there's an issue that faces us that is not easy for us to deal with. Those of us who are in the baby boomer generation and younger have never seen this. I've never seen it even close to exercise but one time. And the one time I saw it, it was very effective. What Jesus is basically saying to the church is exercise church discipline. It is amazing to me, absolutely fascinating to me, that we as Southern Baptists pick and choose what we will teach and believe. And basically what we've done, because we don't want to offend and we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, we don't want to do anything, we've taken Matthew 18 and we've taken Paul's reference to the man who needed to be kicked out of the church and we've conveniently cut those out of our Bibles. Now, we've not cut them out. We just don't read those pages and practice them. So we're denying Scripture is what we're doing. The purpose of church discipline, listen, is not to punish. It is to purify. It is not to punish. It is to purify it is not to come to the point of ridding the church of somebody. It is to try to reclaim, as Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, you who are spiritual, restore them. It is not to reclaim. It is for restoration, and it is for reclaiming them for ministry, not to rid the church of them and get them out and forget about them. That's not the purpose of church discipline. The purpose of church discipline is to love somebody enough to confront them with their sin. And if we don't love somebody enough to confront them with their sin, that's sloppy agape. It's just to say, oh, well, we just love everybody around here. We're just going to let anybody do anything they want to do and just say anything they want to say, act any way they want to act, talk any way they want to talk, and we're just going to love everybody. Friends, you won't find that in the pure bride. That's not going to be in glory. Jesus purifies his church. Church discipline is taking corrective measures taken in regard to a matter of sin in the life of a believer. Just as evangelism is the confronting of lost people who are in bondage, church discipline is the confronting of saved people who are in bondage. All of us have the, the possibility of falling into sin. There is none of us that is immune from false doctrine, false teaching, error, heresy, or immorality. None of us is immune from that. And if you walk around saying, it never happened to me, my friend, you are open target for Satan to try it. All of us 
need accountability. And that's what church discipline is. It is accountability. It is holding one another responsible. And Jesus says to them in verse 16, basically what verse 16 says is, if you don't deal with it, I will. Now, folks, the worst thing in the world is for a church to have so much false love that it doesn't deal with its problems and Jesus has to come deal with them. Because he identifies himself three times in these first two chapters as the one with a sword in his mouth. I was watching a television show last night. One of the high moments of my life, Zorro was on the Family Channel. And he had this sharp two-edged sword, and he was fighting the, whatever the guy's name was, the jerk that was running the city. And, and, and he takes his sword, and he's got the other guy's hand, and he takes his sword and cuts the other guy's sword in half. And as I was sitting there thinking, you know, that's kind of the way Jesus' sword is. When he comes to deal with it, he cuts through everything. What Jesus was saying to the church is, if you don't deal with it, I will. You see, the problem is those who follow the teachings of Nicholas and those who follow the teachings of Balaam, if they are not disciplined, if they are not confronted, if they are not lovingly taken through the steps of Matthew chapter 18, they think, hey, man, everything's great. No problem with me. I'm not being persecuted. I'm not being disciplined. I'm not being corrected. Nobody's saying anything to me. So what I'm doing must be fine. Everything's okay. And the next person they see is God. Because God comes in with a two-edged sword. And he takes care of the problem. And Jesus said, before they have to see me, they ought to see you. And then maybe they won't have to see me so quickly. Folks, I really do believe that some people are taken home early because of disobedience and sin. And I also believe that some of them wouldn't be taken home early if the church did what it was supposed to do. We've lost some people prematurely. We've lost people prematurely. Every church I've served in, I've, I know that there have been people that probably died before their time because the church wouldn't deal with them. God had to before they corrupted the church. And folks, that's on our hands. That's our responsibility. Jesus said, you repent, church, for not dealing with them. Havner said, nothing is plainer in Scripture than what to do about worldliness, and we do nothing about it. Dealing with sin, not tolerating sin. Now, why would Jesus tell us to do that? Two reasons. First of all, love for the believer, and secondly, love for the bride. Jesus loves that person that's in sin, and we don't need to forget it. He loves the believer, but he also loves the bride. He wants the bride to be pure and holy and chaste. He expects that of us. And so he comes and says, repent or else I'm going to deal with him. These people thought they were safe. But the one with the sword in his mouth was about to come at him. Now you see, the responsibility of the pastor is to preach the word without apology and to say what God's word says. The responsibility of the pew is to do what God's word says. To be biblical thinkers, not to be convenience thinkers, not to be uh, my opinion thinkers, not to be thinkers in, well, how much can we tolerate and how much can we put up with and how much can, I mean, how, much, how many cancer cells do you have to have to have cancer? It only takes one. So what are we going to do? We're going to wait until we may have 100 cancer cells, and then we decide it's time to do something about it. And then we maybe get 1,000, and then we decide maybe it's time to go see a doctor. You see, folks, sin in the church and heresy in the church is a lot like cancer. It can spread just like that. It doesn't take 
but one person teaching error for a church to go down the tubes. And some of you have come from churches just like that. You've seen the results. You've seen what it's done to a witness for Christ. The key to the Reformation was that the Reformers were tireless, diligent preachers of the Word, and the people responded to the Word. Now, there are three facts about error that you need to know. First of all, it slips up on you. It slips up on you. I mean, it just, it just kind of comes in. You don't invite it. I've never seen a church that invited error. I've never seen a church that opened its arms and said, well, just come on in and teach whatever you want to teach and do whatever you want to do. That's why a church needs to have standards for Sunday school teachers. That's why a church needs to have standards for deacons and for staff and for pastors because a church needs to know who's teaching its people. And if somebody's not teaching the truth, that person doesn't need to be teaching. That's not a lack of love. That's keeping doctrinal purity in the church. It slips up on you. I mean, you can just kind of come in. Secondly, it makes you settle for second best. You say, well, you know, it's not, everything's not like it should be, but... Oh, you know, we're still better than most folks are. I mean, you know, we've got a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little hodgepodge of this, but, but it's, it's still better than most places, and it makes you settle for second best. The third thing that happens is it makes you take a step toward apostasy. It makes you take a step toward apostasy, and once you start sliding down a muddy hill, folks, it's hard to stop. It's hard to stop. I'll never forget when I was in uh, Ada as pastor, we had a gentleman and his family that wanted to join our church. Nice guy. Nice guy. Believed some strange things. And so I asked the deacon and one of our staff members to go following Matthew 18 and deal with them. And he said, well, okay. And, I won't. and then he came back and wanted to join. So one Sunday night I met with him, with the chairman of our deacons. And I said, brother, if you come down, I will not present you to this church because you believe things that this church does not believe. And you want to teach things that this church does not need taught. And if you come down, you can try every service for the rest of your life, but you will never join this church as long as I'm pastor. Because my responsibility as pastor is to keep the purity of the church. And if you try to come in and change us, my friend, I'm telling you, you won't change us. You'll never teach. You'll never lead unless your theology changes. Because we can't have that. We just can't have it. And he respected that. He still came and sat in the worship services. I couldn't stop him from doing that. But I could say to him, you can't join this church and affiliate with this church because you are not of like faith. Jude talks about those who preach the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And he took the faith once for all delivered to the saints and tried to add to it. You can't do that. Now another way that church discipline handles itself is in the matter of those who would in any way in this area of power struggles try to manipulate or move or to take over and rule in the flesh. It's interesting to me because I can say this at this point in my ministry a year from now, I probably can't say this. Uh, it's interesting to me that the Bible says, lay not your hand on God's anointed. It's interesting to me that when David had every opportunity to kill Saul, although Saul was a wicked ruler, he never did it. Yet he was the one anointed by God to take the place of Saul. He never took care of Saul. He let God take care of Saul. And you know, it's amazing. God always does a better job of taking care of Saul than I would. Always. You see, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, you believe that God's in control of every situation. And whatever the situation is, that person's there for a reason, and you're there for a reason, and both of you got something to learn. 
15 years ago, I served a church as a youth minister. We had a gentleman there who was always causing problems. I mean, every time you turned around, he was causing a problem. All of it, it didn't matter what it was. It didn't matter if it was something to do with a physical plant. It didn't matter if it was doing with a budget. It didn't matter what it had to do with. He was always going to say a negative word. And he was organizing behind the scenes and getting all the critics together, and they were gabbing and had the phone lines tied up. In fact, one of these guys' wife had a telephone in the bathroom so she could talk no matter where she was. That's a joke. No, she really did. And I remember one night I got a phone call from the chairman of the deacons. And our chairman of the deacons, and I love that man because he's about 6'7", and he weighed about 275 pounds. a big man. I like those kind of men. He called me up and said, uh, Michael, I think you ought to know that Gene's on his way to your house, and he says he's going to beat you up. That was encouraging to me as a young youth minister. So I did what any youth minister would do. I called for help. And they weren't middle schoolers either. And Gene just kept egging it on, egging it on, egging it on. I mean, all the time. It just, you could just see the vengefulness and the hatefulness and the anger and the bitterness all welling up inside of him. And he called me up one day on the phone, and I was sitting in my office, and he just started blessing me out. I mean, he called me everything in the world. He told me I was the scum of the earth. I should have never been born. You know, that my birth should have been retroactive somewhere back. I mean, he just told me everything. And finally, in the middle of it, I just interrupted, and I said, Gene, and I don't even know why, I still to this day, if I had to rethink that conversation, I would have never said this. I want you to understand, I would have never said this if I were rethinking this conversation. But in my brash youthfulness, I said, Gene, if you don't shut up and repent, brother, God's going to kill you. So I called the chairman of the deacons and took it to a couple other guys that were deacons, and I said, this guy, I mean, how much longer are we going to let this go on? You see, folks, I'm kind of an idealist. I think if the Bible says it, we ought to do it. I mean, I don't think we ought to sit around and debate about what the Bible is clear about. If Jesus says it once, it's enough to do it. If he says it twice, it's enough to do it. There's at least three times he says to exercise church discipline. So we had a deacon's meeting on that Sunday afternoon. The chairman of the deacons in the middle of the meeting, we decided we would call this brother in, and so we called him in. And he sat down and he listened to the things, the charges that were being brought against him. He had been talked to privately. He had been talked to with two witnesses. Four or five men had gone to see him. Nothing would change his mind. The last thing that was brought up were the things that I wrote down as he was talking to me because I figured, you know, it's just me and him on this phone. So I'm going to write down what he's saying because I want to make sure I keep up with what he's accusing me of. So I wrote it down and I brought it to the deacon's meeting and the chairman of the deacon's read it. And I'll never forget as Gene stood up in that meeting and he got a big old black Bible and he put it down on the podium like this and he put his hand on top of it. He said, I swear with God as my witness, 95% of what Michael Katz said is a lie. And the deacon sitting next to me, who's now a pastor in Florida, turned around and looked at me and he said, Gene just signed his death certificate. Folks, I want you to know that that next week, the doctors discovered an inoperable brain tumor right at the base of the neck. They went in to operate, and as that man was being rolled into the operating room, he was cursing his pastor for everything that he stood for. At the funeral, when we were feeding the family, the sons were standing at the door to keep guard so that the pastor nor any of the staff could go in and try to minister to that family. Now, folks, I believe this with all my heart. 
I think Gene would still be alive today if he had repented. And I think he would also have been alive today if the church had done what they were supposed to do before he got that far. You see, I think we're partly to blame for him being dead today because I think if we had confronted him in the early stages of his bondage, in the early stages of that stronghold, in the early stages of his rebellion, I think we could have saved him because I think he would have repented. Now, the counsel is very simple. Hidden manna is the bread of life, Jesus Christ. He says, take the word and feed on it. Now, folks, what that means is simply this. Take God's word and feed on it. There are too many of us as believers who are saying, so-and-so told me that God says. So-and-so says that God says. And if you say so-and-so says that God says long enough, then eventually you think so-and-so is God and you start quoting him like he's God. Hidden manna. Feed on the word. If you want to avoid error, feed on the word. Stay in the word. Secondly, he talks about white stones. Those are stones of acquittal. They are stones of purity. They were stones that were used to enter into a banquet hall. They are stones of justification. God washes us white. He purifies us. He justifies us. That's the result. And then the third one is he gives us a new name. He gives us a new name, a new nature, a new character. I would never choose for you what you listen to or who you listen to or what tapes you buy or what religious broadcasts that you uh, watch or anything else. But I'll tell you this, folks. If you're going to be theologically and doctrinally pure, you can't watch about 90% of what's on religious television. You just can't do it. Because the bottom line of most religious television especially if it is not based in a local church, the bottom line is money and ego because they're trying to build a kingdom. Folks, the Lord did not say upon the rock of an evangelistic association or upon the rock of an organization that builds a college, I'm going to build my church. He said, I'm going to build it on the local church. You read the scriptures. He always works through the local church. And I would be very careful if I were you about what I watched. Because there's no way you can just watch that stuff and just see all that th th stuff coming in and get it in your unconscious mind and at some point it doesn't mix and you've got error mixed with truth. You see, when you do that, it's kind of like eating vegetable soup. It may taste good, like vegetable soup. But theologically, it's going to kill you. It's going to poison you like one drop of arsenic. You see, poison doesn't have to be visible to be deadly. It just has to be in there. And ladies and gentlemen, when doctrinal purity is concerned, as a pastor of this church, I'm concerned. Because I'm concerned that in about three years ago, Southern Baptists, listen to me, Southern Baptists in America alone gave $30 million to Garner Ted Armstrong, who doesn't even believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, you want to know where you give your money? Give it to Annie Armstrong and give it to Lottie Moon, and give it to your local church budget. Because I'm going to tell you something. With his warts that we've got as Southern Baptists, 
We're not building water slides with our money. You want to know where you give your time and your energy and your efforts? Just give it to the cause of Christ through missions where there's some accountability. You see, our structure is so unique. Although it's got problems, I know we've got problems. The reason we've got problems right now in our pulpits because we've had problems in the seminaries for years is that we have failed to address. And the reason that there's a controversy in our convention today is because the churches in America and the Southern Baptist Convention wouldn't do this right here. We wouldn't say to a liberal professor, you can't teach. Kevin Moore and I sat in a seminary class at Midwestern Seminary and heard a professor of Old Testament tell us that any book written by Broadman Press was just as inspired as any book of the Old Testament. That's great for book sales. It stinks for the Bible. I know we've got problems. I'm not going to deny that. But I'm going to tell you this. You've got a better chance of your problems being dealt with in a local church than you do trying to control how many limousines your $10 bought for the guy on television. Because I'll tell you this, I don't know how this turned into money, but it did. I'll tell you this, those folks are not going to come visit you in the hospital. And they're not going to bury your loved ones. And this garbage about I was in my prayer tower today and I was here today and the Lord brought you to mind and with a $100 seed faith gift, I believe God will answer your prayers. Folks, that has one place. It has the hiss of a serpent in it. Be careful. Be careful. This church, of all the churches I've served, may be as close to striving for doctrinal purity as any church I've ever served. I want you to know that. But folks, I want to tell you something. Satan's always looking for a hole in the wall. He is always looking for a place to slide down the aisle. He's always looking for a crack that he can get through to put his poison into the church. And where God is doing a work, always understand, Satan is right behind him doing a counter work. You and I must pray and work and live for the purity of the church lest we wake up one day and Jesus say to us, repent or else I'm coming against you quickly. He that has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Would you stand with heads bowed and eyes closed?